Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Nate Williams joins us today from San Francisco. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Union Labs VC, a pre-seed and C-Sage venture fund focused on highly technical deep tech founders who want to solve big problems and change the world. Prior to launching Union Labs, he was an EIR at Kleiner Perkins, focused on opportunities in climate, prop tech, and mobility. And prior to Kleiner Perkins, Nate's track record includes senior leadership experiences executing through startup growth and turnaround stages, culminating in successful exits for Four Home, which sold to Motorola, Motorola Mobility, which sold to Google, and August Homes, which sold to Asa Abloy. And some notable current investments include Antimatter, Butler, Strela, Urban Sky, and Urban Machine. Nate, it's great to have another operator alum on the show, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. So welcome to the Heavy Hitters. <laughs> you know, Ty, I'm really excited to be here on Heavy Hitters, and I just want to call out some of my favorite episodes you've had. The yeah. Jeff Amell pod was great. American Dynism, and the most recent one I listened to was my friend Lior Susan from Eclipse Ventures talking about all the great things they're doing in Industry 4.0 investing. So super happy to be here. Well, all heavy hitters, and I got one on the show today. So let's let's get rocking and rolling. And, and I always start, I give a little snippet of your background, but let give us the color commentary here on the journey and, and what led you and your co-founder, Chris, to launching uh, Union Labs. Yeah, why don't I do two parts, a little bit of a personal introduction to listeners that may not know me and my fund, and then a little bit on Union. So in terms of a personal background, I'm Nate Williams. I'm the co-founder and managing partner here at Union. I was born on the East Coast. I grew up outside of New Haven, Connecticut. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Actually, both my grandfathers were World War II veterans. One worked at the gas company in New Jersey his entire career after serving in uh, the Asia Pacific. My other grandfather worked at West Point in Newburgh, New York, uh, every year uh, since he got back from World War II. School on the East Coast. And I got out here in uh, Silicon Valley in 2005. And so effectively was an operator at three different startups. Two of them have got acquired as a COO, a CRO or CMO. And as we talk about venture capital, my first gig after graduate school at UCLA was working at Intel, where I worked on due diligence for an investment that ultimately was made by John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins. And why that's important is From the year 2005 to now, I've been a student of the financial markets and venture capital, and I saw three main changes as I created that relationship with Kleiner Perkins and ultimately came back to Kleiner in 2017 as EIR. The three changes I saw were really, number one, as an asset class, private equity and therefore venture capital has grown over the past 15 years by an order of magnitude. We have hundreds, if not thousands of new funds out in the market bigger funds. The second part is I saw out here as an operator, the first generation of what super angels were, the Mike Maples of the world, the Manu Kumars of the world, the Aiden Senkot. A lot of those seed investors are now very, very big, very successful Series A investors. So think of Data Collective with multiple billions of dollars under management. But probably 
I can point to the one moment or one set of experiences that led Chris and myself to start Union. So I was at Kleiner Perkins as an EIR, but I kept getting calls from deep tech investors, names like Lux or Eclipse or Coastal Ventures, and they weren't asking me specifically about the technology of the companies they invested in. They had a problem figuring out product market fit or go to market. And I realized at that point, there are two main issues in any deep tech company. First is developing a product that has significant technological advantage. But the second is actually finding a home in monetization. And I realized I could create a new firm that was seed stage only that focused specifically on backing these highly technical founders and creating a union of series ABC firms, technical founders, and some of the best Fortune 1000 companies. So that's a little bit about how we got started. Chris and I, we worked together uh, at August, our successful startup since 2015. To say the least, as a sector-focused fund trying to help out on the go-to-market, I, I think you're spot on and there's a lot of help to be needed to find that product market fit. And we're going to come back to define more of deep tech here in a second because I, I definitely want to make sure. sure we get that on record. But maybe before we jump into it, um, set the stage for the discussion with our listeners. Tell us a little bit more on kind of those high level data points more tactically about Union Labs generally and the fund mandate. Yeah, really appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So as you mentioned, Union Labs Ventures is a San Francisco based seed stage deep tech fund. We focus on climate, prop tech and mobility. We're investing out of our fund one, which is a 2020 vintage and then moving over to our fund two. We have five people on the team. It's two general partners, Chris Kim and myself, plus a director of ops, a senior associate who came over from Evergy Ventures. And we have a venture partner who came over from the advanced AI group at Meta. Um, where we spend our time is on pre-seed and seed investing. Our average check size is between 750K and $1 million. And just some quick stats, from Union One, we've made 18 investments so far. We've co-led or led 11 of those investments. And of the 18 teams, 11 of those teams have a founder that's either female, immigrant, or underrepresented minority. And so that's where we spend time as a firm, really trying to find the next technical founder to solve a really big problem in the physical world. Right on. We got a lot of them to go after. So uh, love it. And uh, maybe pun intended here. Let's kick this off and go deeper on the fun thesis where you call out and quote, where what is meets what could be investing in those highly technical deep tech founders who want to change the world. So, you know, call it similar to the ongoing marketing battle, I I think, in the climate sustainability sustainability ESG green tech ecosystem. Everyone seems to now have their own definition uh, of what they claim. Deep Tech's got the same kind of definition thing going on in its category. So first, how do you like to define the term Deep Tech? And given that these innovators are usually capital intensive, though not always, and it's clearly evident by y'all's portfolio, let's understand more what the current state of Deep Tech venture investing looks like from your perspective, given the last year of uh, market recalibration. Yeah, so two-part question. First is a definition, and then the second is market status. 
So uh, I, I agree with your supposition wholeheartedly as the fellow practitioner yourself in deep tech investing. I think we're at the early stages of what deep tech is defined as. And so I take comfort in the fact that some of the limited partners in our fund have been very successful SaaS investors previously. And if I rewind the clock 12 years ago, the term enterprise cloud wasn't even invented. Nobody even knew what SaaS was. And so there were a variety of funds like Emergence Capital and Scale and Kleiner Perkins that helped create this knowledge of what SaaS investing is. So first is it's okay that not everyone knows what deep tech is. Okay, so let me double click. Let me use a definition that we used at Kleiner Perkins regarding deep tech. And so deep tech, is the same when people say deep tech, it could mean deep tech, hard tech, frontier tech, tough tech, et cetera. Those are all synonyms. It's the same way of talking about soda, pop, Coca-Cola, et cetera. So I'm gonna go through this really quickly. The most important part of a four part windup for what deep tech is, the first is it has to include hard science or technology, period, full stop. If you need to know one thing about what deep tech is, it has to have hardcore science or technology. This is stuff that's at the cutting edge of what's happening in quantum, in compute, in cyber, et cetera. So by example, um, FinTech products are not deep tech products. Uh, marketplaces like I wanna sell my beanie baby on eBay, that's not deep tech. What deep tech is hardcore science in cyber, in cryptology, in communications, in robotics, that's number one. The second thing that we talked about at Kleiner Perkins, and I credit Wen Shea from Kleiner, is it's hard to find. So I don't know about you, Ty, and Iron Spring, but I probably get 30 emails a week from these AI marketing companies that can write blog posts for me. Well, that's not hard to find. I could just open my inbox and find those. But it's really hard to find a leading agricultural sensor company or a wood recycling robotics company. So the second part of deep tech is, these companies are hard to find by definition because they're solving a hard problem at the beginning of technological adoption. So then part three is, it, it's a counter to part two, which is if this deep tech investment is successful, it's gonna have a natural barrier to entry. So if you think about like hard tech, um, a lot of these companies have some barriers to entry that are quite significant. I'm not gonna wake up tomorrow, Ty, and create a competitor SpaceX. I'm not going to create a, a, a you know, competitor Nest today or Tesla. So you think about that. And I'm glad I mentioned hardware. That's the last thing I would say. I've spent the last four years building union, talking to founders and entrepreneurs. It may involve hardware. Um, there's nothing wrong with hardware investing. I think there's been a renaissance in hardware investing. But deep tech doesn't necessarily have to involve hardware. At the end of the day, hardware is a host for the sensors and the sensors provide data that allow us to make better decisions regarding weather, regarding tracking and transportation, our food supply. So in a high level, that's what we see regarding the definition of deep tech. It has to involve hard science or tech. So then your second question was really around, you know, there's a lot of discussion regarding different themes as an investor in capital intensity. One of the things that's not well understood about deep tech, because it's so closely associated in investors' mind with hardware, is that this idea, it's going to take way more capital and it's going to take way longer. So, oh, you're doing a deep tech company, it's going to take $200 million and 12 years to IPO. Well, you know, 
Number one, that's not the case. We've seen data most recently that showed that deep tech companies on average that reach unicorn status, again, I think that's a you know, hot button item now in this market, but effectively took five years and $77 million of investment. So it's considerably less than expected. In some cases, it's way less than companies in say marketplaces that raised more. One quick thing um, that I would mention, and this was brought up to me, um, Uber, for example, Uber, uh, obviously a great company, provides a great service, so does Lyft, but the total net operating loss for Uber was over $31 billion. So between 2023, rewind back to 2014, they had an operating loss of $31.5 billion. I saw the same chart you did where they've just turned their first operating profit as of the last quarter, right? After the 30 something billion dollars in operating losses, right? I think I saw that. <laughs> yeah. The dream sequence is, you know, a company that I admire that I think is a spectacular company is Viva Software. So it's one of those vertically focused SaaS companies. Mm. They raised $7 million. They spent $3 million of their $7 million. They're now publicly traded with a market capitalization of $31 billion. So you and I had talked about in our last meetup out here in the Bay Area about being provocative. I'm here to say that I think we're gonna see several deep tech companies that go public, you know, raising less than $50 million that are gonna have you know, north of $20 billion market caps. We're at that point where you can get on-demand compute, where you can get you know, uh, ready to build uh, robotic arms. And also there's a variety of non-dilutive funding, like think about all the DOD contracts. So I think we're about to see a seed change in the capital intensity of some of these deep tech companies. And as a seed investor, I'm all for it. You know, it's a little bit of a setup question, but I'm completely with you, right? Similar to how, you know, a decade ago, they say software is now easier to start a found, you know, founder to start a company up around because compute's cheap, et cetera. Exactly like you said, deep tech is evolving and there's been multiple podcasts already to talk about exactly what you mentioned. You can be capital efficient running a deep tech startup now. And I think the other part you mentioned, Lior, there's even more information now. If there is a hardware that's enabling sensors to collect more data for the broader platform, well, there's a lot more lessons learned about how you engage and build business models around hardware and what metrics are associated to it. So I'm 100% in your camp. I think the ecosystem is evolving and developing and and hopefully we can wave our flag and recruit more folks to the to the deep tech sector. I'm with you. I love it. Well, maybe moving us forward, I think the opposite end of the beginning question about deep tech is something I'm really passionate about, thinking about exits and founders beginning with the end in mind as they do capitalize these types of businesses, you know, especially within, you know, deep tech categories when applied to industrial industries, a lot of focus of this podcast, there may be limited to no comps relative to other defined categories like traditional enterprise software, consumer IT, whatever. But exactly to your point, they also produce massive moats and can generate a lot of alpha if executed correctly. So I my setup there to take us through how Union Labs thinks about this topic of the end in mind when making investment decisions. How do you evaluate exit potential in a category that hasn't been fully defined yet, even though you and I have both seen even the last three to five years alone, certainly a lot more accelerated VC investment valuations and, and some sustained exits. So said simply, how do you get comfortable investing ahead of the curve in these deep tech categories? Yeah. <laughs> 
first of all, I love I love the question and maybe a shout out to Iron Spring and the deals that we've looked at together. I've always appreciated you and your partner's prepared mind regarding the size of the available markets and some of the striations. So even though I consider venture to be more of an art than a science, I do think we should use some quantitative tools as benchmarks or kind of direction for us to get conviction. So, you know, our view at Union, we're investing in highly technical founders. In most cases, we're the first check-in. And so for us to be so... Uh, clairvoyant to know what's going to happen, you know, eight to seven years, eight, 10 years from now, very difficult. So right. I learned this at Kleiner Perkins because my office was actually at the precipice from where the digital growth fund touched the venture group. So I was part of the venture group working with Wen Shea and Mamoon Hamid, but I also was down the hall from the growth team, which had Mary Meeker and the rest of that team. And obviously you couldn't think of two more distinct styles. Mary Meeker, who's a late stage investor, a famed Wall Street analyst, uh, a queen of discounted cash flow, public comps, she could look and with high conviction through her financial analysis, know that a next door or some of her investments were going to generate alpha. Meanwhile, Mamoon is obviously one of the goats of SaaS investing, one of the biggest hitters. When we think of Figma, we think of Box. He is a person that understands deeply technology because he's an engineer by training, but he's also a very gifted person of understanding founders. And so what I learned when I was at Kleiner is it's more of an art than a science. And so when we're at Union, a couple of things early on, once we have conviction that the entrepreneur is world class, because everything starts with a founder. We need a gritty, ambitious founder that wants to make history. And if that happens, we want to make sure that they're spending the next 7, 10, 12 years of their life working on a problem that's big enough. And so some of the ways that we get comfortable about that journey is, number one, think about the business that they're trying to disrupt or take part of. And so you mentioned Lior's podcast here on Heavy Hitters. What I loved about Lear's podcast is his talking. The size and scale of the industrial world is just so large. It's 70% of our GDP, plus or minus 5%. It's massive. And so the first thing we do is say, if everything goes right, how big of a company can this be? So I'll give you an example. We have a company that does wood recycling called Urban Machine. They won South, of, South by Southwest for best sustainability. It's us. GV, lower carbon, catapult ventures. We looked at the size of the market for building, for commercial, for single family, for multifamily and said, hey, construction materials is a massive business. We shouldn't be shipping wood all the way from Vancouver, all the way down to San Francisco. Why can't you recycle it over in Oakland? So that's part one. Is it big enough? The second screen, and I think this is an area that you and I've had a variety of great conversations is how much capital intensity to get to some outcome. Because if you tell me as a seed investor, I'm going to take a hill, but to take that hill, this company needs to raise 200 to $500 million. That's probably not a great fit for our fund strategy. And so what we try to do is understand what are the demonstrable sets of product and market milestones to get momentum here. And by doing that, we have a better idea of the type of exit outcome that could be accretive to our fund. So, you know, a variety of startups end up in trade sales. They get bought by Cisco. They get 
bought by Comcast, et cetera. If you have the right entry price and the right ownership, that could be a fund returner at 300 or 400, 500 million dollars. But you have to be very smart about how much capital is required. So we spend a good amount of time on that. The other thing that I would say is very important in thinking about this is understanding all sources of capital are not the same relative to dilution. So I mentioned that we have some companies that work, you know, in government, DOD, et cetera. Because of what we're seeing in American Dynism, there are a variety of ways to grow your business without venture equity that allows you to sort of grow the business. So I am a, a unabashed, unapologetic former CRO. I love selling. I sold. I've owned the number at startups. And I would say the best way to limit venture dilution is to sell the hell out of your product. Get the pipeline going, get a customer, start selling. Absolutely. Sales, uh, sales always speaks. And, uh, you know, something else that's interesting, this ecosystem has really evolved into other non-dilutive forms of, of money, whether it be grants or, or whatnot. You mentioned Mary Meeker. She at Bond joined us in, in our portfolio company, Icon. Lots of grant money there that, you know, again, the massive GDP and millions of skilled laborers. Let's don't forget that part of that. I think that there is a plenty of ecosystem that's surrounding these companies. How can you be capital efficient and also find other ways of doing it in a capital efficient manner? So tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I'm only seeing more and more opportunities to to find different ways of, of building these businesses. That's not, as you say, locked in that legacy mindset of massively capital intensive deep technology. Absolutely. And again, I think part of this podcast should be to dispel some of these you know, rumors that happen out here in the Valley. Although there is this cult of a technical founder, you are not a great founder unless you know how to build amazing product and sell that product. And so I think we as an industry suffer from a lack of appreciation and recognition of just how important go-to-market sales thrust and velocity is. And so I'm spending more and more time with our founders helping them understand founder-led sales, but also negotiating that conversation of when it's appropriate to bring in a go-to-market heavy hitter because the right person at the right time in a pumping formation can unlock a ton of value. And of course, you don't want a former Salesforce VP at a, you know, a company of three people, but there are folks early, you know, employee number six, employee number 10, that can unlock a ton of value and tell you more about your potential customers than just, you know, picking up the phone as a CEO. Spot on. Well, big part of this podcast is sharing all these lessons learned. So thanks for, thanks for helping do it. And, uh, you know, a part of, you know, building ecosystem, I want to take the last question here in that, in that sure. same vector. Um, and so let's wrap up by talking about how, how do we tactically build more ecosystem and share those lessons learned in a category that we, we hope we can accelerate even faster. And so you guys have really put a focus uh, from the very beginning on partnering and building community around your fund and the founders in a lot of ways, whether it's the Roots you know, Incubating Union at Kleiner Perkins, where you had support with Google Ventures, uh, a regular Taco Tuesday event series where you ride bikes with co-investors like Congruent and G2VP. That's awesome. Uh, we were able to you know, host our happy hour out in SF when we were out in the Bay last quarter to even where me, you and Chris spent time going through operators, emerging managers, trying to figure out how to how to bring that value prop to founders. I, I could go on on a much longer list here. So the question is simple here. 
why did you guys decide to pursue a community and ecosystem building effort so heavily right out of the gate as you launched the firm? It's not an easy thing to do when you got a hundred things pulling for your time, as uh, I guess all our emerging manager listeners could could well appreciate. So what are the words of advice or wisdom you'd have for other uh, emerging managers out there who are thinking about building community and helping uh, helping build with us? Yeah, I love the I love the question, Ty. Um, you know, remember us emerging managers, yourself at Iron Spring, us, other people in our operator cohort, the Stellations of the world, the Hannah Grays, et cetera. We're founders too, right? We've 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 built Absolutely. these firms. We built these firms on a hypothesis that something's missing in the venture capital conversation. And we're building these brands like a union or an iron spring to solve a problem for an entrepreneur when they want capital and connections. And so I think about it as a founder and I say, you know, go to market's important to me and emerging managers because we want two things. I want surface area with founders and I want to build reputation. And so let me talk quickly about surface area. The way that I think of our go to market strategy at Union is we are a superset of the brands that we've been associated through our career, schools we went to, companies we worked at like Google, eBay, Facebook, et cetera, startups we've created. But that only is limited by our personal experience. So five people would say 125 years of professional experience, there's only so much. But what actually compounds every time we make an investment is we build our network because of these founders and their connections and their peers, either at Y Combinator or Berkeley or in Seattle or in places like Philly where we invest. So that's number one is we want to make sure that we increase our surface area and that's the reason why we have these events like you and I working together on that happy hour where the taco climate deep tech ride is we want to come in contact with these founders and compete for uh, you know the win, compete for the business. So if I just sat here in my office looking at inbound emails, I'm going to see some deals that are great. People know us from previous lives, but the best deals you got to go hunt. And so that's number one. We want to make sure that we're in contact and have a surface area with these founders to meet them um, where they're working, playing, striving, living. The second is reputationally. And I think this is something emerging managers should spend more time thinking about. So I had an amazing discussion yesterday with Chris Duvos from Ahoy Capital. And he said, Nate, I hate it when managers throw up those slides with all their co-investors. And it's never the small funds that they co-invest with. It's always Kleiner, Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, General Catalyst, Haystack. And I'm like, hey, man, don't hate the player, hate the game. Right, because there's some reason why they're signaling that limited partners want to see these big logos. But I said, here's a question that you can ask as an LP. Who and who are the people who know about your firm and what do they say? And so something that's fundamental to how I run Union is I care about our reputation as a firm, not only with founders, a high NPS. I care a hell of a lot what other emerging managers think of our firm. Are we collaborative? Are we sharing deals? Am I helping you be a better GP? Am I helping you, you know, think around the corner? And so I would love other emerging managers to think about that and to make sure when you get asked, what are three managers that you respect that you can rattle off a list of whatever, 10 people from your Kaufman Fellows class or 10 people from your operator network. That's the way we can grow this industry with a variety of new emerging and diverse founders. You're getting me fired up. I couldn't agree more. And I think it also links back to your earlier point, right? A lot of times these type of deep tech founders, they're, they are hard to find. And so if you're not spreading that surface area, 
you know, if you're not a part of the chatter to your other point, uh, it's, it's really hard and we don't want that to ever be a barrier for them to finding the right funding sources and the go-to-market partners that we've talked about at length on the podcast. So I agree, uh, wholeheartedly let's keep building ecosystem together, Nate, to say the least. At the end of the podcast, I always love to bring the, the the discussion back to those founders who are in the arena, and let's give them some words of wisdom. You know, for those those that may be thinking about raising or approaching Union Labs, and we always like to split it, maybe a a piece of advice as they enter the chat, and maybe a common pitfall to avoid as they uh, as they enter the discussion. Yeah, a, a a piece of advice that I wish I knew earlier. You know, one of my favorite books I've ever read. There's two: Man's Search for Meaning from Viktor Frankl. And how you how will you measure your life from Clayton Christensen? And so I think that 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 question of what defines you, how you define yourself, and how you see yourself is super important because the journey of being a founder is one of the loneliest, hardest, you know, most difficult journey. And so without self-knowledge, self-love, et cetera, it's really difficult to be there. So I think that's something that I spend time thinking about is know how founders can know themselves and understand how to counter program either a co-founder or people on their team so they can be more successful. Another question you asked is, you know, what is something that we look for in teams? And I would say something that we spend time talking about is we're looking for evidence of exceptionalism. And I know that's an interesting term, but we're looking for something that showed this person set their mind to do something that was so crazy, such a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, and they did it. It gave them the self-confidence to do it more. And I'll just give you a couple examples. We have a founder in our portfolio, uh, Catherine from Strella, came to the U.S. from Russia when she was young, got herself into Penn. She was captain of Penn Fencing. Like that story showed so much grit for her to learn English, to come here, to excel in academics and found a company when she was a junior. But at the same time, we have somebody on our team, Annie, our director of ops, she was at Teal Capital and she became a licensed pastry chef. Like how to do that at like a tier one firm is beyond me, but she did it. And I love to see that, that hallmark of you tried something so hard, you might've failed, but you did it. So that's one. And then a pitfall, as you mentioned, I think a pitfall that I see in founders these days is there's just so much free advice on Twitter or on, you know, the various podcasts is they just basically take a piece of advice and they don't contextualize it. So, you know, Ty, they're in a conversation with you and your partners at Iron Spring, you give them a verbal offer and they read on a Y Combinator blog, you got to go shop the deal. And so I would say... Mm -hmm the cost of a piece of advice is basically the text that it's written, right? Which is zero. And that mileage may vary. And I would caution founders to, you know, have a personal board of advisors to talk to, seek counsel and always ask the question. It's easy for somebody to have an opinion. It's harder to walk a mile in their shoes. So the best founders I see, they listen to all the opinions, they atomize that information. And then you know what? They take a decision and they say, thank you, Nate. I liked your uh, opinion regarding the product roadmap. I went in a different direction. And you know what? That's our job. We back and support. We don't direct as venture capitalists off to the races. Right on. On our best days, we're, we're really good middlemen. Otherwise, uh, do no harm, That's share it. opinions, right? Something like that. Um, That's well, wrapping us up here, we got a little section of quick hitters. So if you're ready, uh, Q&A, we'll jump in. Let's do it. All right. What is the number one thing when you're evaluating a founder within this deep tech ecosystem you're looking for? 
Yeah, you know, I mentioned it before with, you know, evidence of exceptionalism, but I think, uh, you know, uh, an extension of that is we're really looking for grit. Um, most of the founders we see have a really interesting and unique uh, insight, either in a technology or, or a market. But the difference between having that product be successful and the product being a failure and never even raising money it's just that little extra 1%. And so if you look at the value of 1% investment in yourself every day, at the end of the month, it's just exponentially higher. So we definitely bias towards people who are gritty, who can do more with less. And we want to see people who are willing to intellectually accept these hard challenges to build something that could be great, like an Apple, like a Tesla, like a Google, like an eBay. Right on. They wrote a whole book about it. Couldn't agree more. Um, it. Well, you, you, you've already given us a couple with Victor Frankel's book and then, you know, how will you measure your life Two seminal pieces of research? You know, what's one resource? It could be anything, book, podcast, blog, you'd recommend for audience to follow in this ecosystem. Yeah, I am a avid user of Twitter, uh, probably not so much on the posting side, but consuming information. And so I would say reading the Twitter and following the Harry Stebbins and the Mamoon Hamids and, you know, the Peter Fams of the world, super great. Um, I get a lot from that, um, not specific advice of how to run my firm, but more about the zeitgeist of what's happening in venture. So I love reading things about pricing on Series A deals. Jenny Fielding, for example, is really great talking about terms she's seeing in the seed stage. So I just think in terms of like ROI, me staring between meetings a little bit at Twitter just makes me feel like I'm in the know. So I think that's a cheat code. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a quiet Twitter troll myself, although I don't interact <laughs> myself. But uh, yeah, I mean, Harry's stuff alone with having Jason Limpkin one day and then he did the roundtable with Slow and, and uh, Frank added in right after it. If you're not in that 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 flow and Jenny's uh, content included, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You're, you're kind of not getting the zeitgeist of things. So uh, great recommendation. Yeah, Shout out, by the way, the Harry Stebbins, Orlando Bravo podcast, probably, or the Bill Ackman, probably two of the best podcasts I've ever heard. Like being able to engage, talk about business, but you know, why people think about the game and how they think about their personal life. I know you and I as friends, you know, part of business school or Kaufman or these things, it's, it's not only what you do, it's how you do it and the type of man you're trying to be, the person, the father, the parent. And so I always love understanding how people are prioritizing their health, uh, their family and success. So I, I, I could I could read those books or listen to those podcasts all day long. Right on. Um, well, who's one person who should be on this show to help build the ecosystem alongside us? Yeah, I I have high conviction that Wen Shea from Kleiner Perkins and Matter Venture Partners, their new fund. This is an absolute, you know, under-marketed gem. This is one of the most sophisticated, smartest uh, deep tech investors who's had close to 20 years of investing experience at Kleiner Perkins, started his career working for John Doerr, effectively, quote-unquote, holding the bag. And I don't think there's a brighter, smarter investor when it comes to semiconductors, networks, et cetera. So definitely someone who's seen it and done it and, you know, with companies like Dexterity and at DJI, Relayer, um, definitely has some bona fides in terms of his investing track record. Right on. We're going to work hard to get Win on then. Couldn't agree more. And then finally, Nate, best way for folks to reach out to you after the show? 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things about living so publicly and building in public is that people can see you. So it's uh, <laughs> at NAY Williams on Twitter. Come and see me. Uh, www.unionlabs.com. Uh, feel free to get in touch. And we'd love to find a way to meet some exciting founders or co-investors. Right on. Well, we've already started by sharing some lessons on this show and we got a lot of ecosystem building ahead of us. I have no doubt, Nate. So I uh, appreciate you coming, spending some time. We'll We'll do it again soon. Appreciate it, man. Have a great day.